Part fifteen of Volume One of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. Volume One of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Solon, Part One. Didymus the grammarian, in his reply to Asclepiades on Solon's tables of law, mentions a remark of one Philocles, in which it is stated that Solon's father was Euphorion, contrary to the opinion of all others who have written about Solon, for they all unite in saying that he was a son of Exocestides, a man of moderate wealth and influence in the city, but a member of its foremost family, being descended from Codrus. Solon's mother, according to Heraclides Ponticus, was a cousin of the mother of Pisistratus, and the two men were at first great friends, largely because of their kinship, and largely because of the youthful beauty of Pisistratus, with whom, as some say, Solon was passionately in love and this may be the reason why, in later years, when they were at variance about matters of state, their enmity did not bring with it any harsh or savage feelings, but their former amenities lingered in their spirits, and preserved their smouldering with a lingering flame of Zeus-sent fire, the grateful memory of their love. And that Solon was not proof against beauty in a youth, and made not so bold with love as to confront him like a boxer hand to hand, may be inferred from his poems. He also wrote a law forbidding a slave to practice gymnastics or have a boy lover, thus putting the matter in the category of honourable and dignified practices, and in a way inciting the worthy to that which he forbade the unworthy. And it is said that Pisistratus also had a boy lover, Carmus, and that he dedicated the statue of love in the academy where the runners in the sacred torch race light their torches. Solon then, after his father had impaired his estate in sundry benevolent charities, as Hermippus tells us, might have found friends enough who were willing to aid him, but he was ashamed to take from others since he belonged to a family which had always helped others, and therefore, while still a young man, embarked in commerce. And yet some say that he travelled to get experience and learning rather than to make money. For he was admittedly a lover of wisdom, since even when he was well on in years he would say that he grew old ever learning many things. And he was not an admirer of wealth, but actually says that two men are alike wealthy, of whom one, much silver hath, and gold, and wide domains of wheat-bearing soil, horses, and mules, while to the other only enough belongs to give him comfort of food, and clothes, and shoes, enjoyment of child and blooming wife, when these two come, and only years commensurate therewith are his. However, in another place he says, Wealth I desire to have, but wrongfully to get it I do not wish. Justice, even if slow, is sure. 
and there is no reason why a good statesman should either set his heart too much on the acquisition of superfluous wealth, or despise unduly the use of what is necessary and convenient. In those earlier times, to use the words of Hesiod, work was no disgrace, nor did a trade bring with it social inferiority, and the calling of a merchant was actually held in honour, since it gave him familiarity with foreign parts, friendship with foreign kings, and a large experience in affairs. Some merchants were actually founders of great cities, as Protis, who was beloved by the Gauls along the Rhone, was of Marseille. Thales is said to have engaged in trade, as well as Hippocrates the mathematician, and Plato defrayed the expenses of his sojourn in Egypt by the sale of oil. Accordingly, if Solon's way of living was expensive and profuse, and if in his poems he speaks of pleasure with more freedom than becomes a philosopher, this is thought to be due to his mercantile life. He encountered many and great dangers, and sought his reward, therefore, in sundry luxuries and enjoyments. But that he classed himself among the poor rather than the rich is clear from these verses. For often evil men are rich and good men poor, but we will not exchange with them our virtue for their wealth, since one abides alway, while riches change their owners every day. And he seems to have composed his poetry at first with no serious end in view, but as amusement and diversion in his hours of leisure. Then later he put philosophic maxims into verse, and interwove many political teachings in his poems, not simply to record and transmit them, but because they contained justifications of his acts, and sometimes exhortations, admonitions, and rebukes for the Athenians. Some say, too, that he attempted to reduce his laws to heroic verse before he published them, and they give us this introduction to them. First let us offer prayers to Zeus, the royal son of Cronus, that he may give these laws of ours success and fame. In philosophy he cultivated chiefly the domain of political ethics, like most of the wise men of the time, and in physics he is very simple and antiquated, as is clear from the following verses. From clouds come sweeping snow and hail, and thunder follows on the lightning's flash. By winds the sea is lashed to storm, but if it be unvexed, it is of all things most amenable. And in general it would seem that Thales was the only wise man of the time who carried his speculations beyond the realm of the practical. The rest got the name of wisdom from their excellence as statesmen. The names usually given in the list of the seven wise men are Bias of Priene, Chilon of Sparta, Cleobulus of Lindus, Periander of Corinth, Pittacus of Mytilene, Solon of Athens, and Thales of Miletus. They are all said to have met together at Delphi, and again in Corinth, where Periander arranged something like a joint conference for them and a banquet. 
but what contributed still more to their honour and fame was the circuit which the tripod made among them, its passing round through all their hands, and their mutual declination of it, with generous expressions of goodwill. Some Coens, as the story goes, were dragging in a net, and some strangers from Miletus bought the catch as yet unseen. It proved to contain a golden tripod which Helen, on her voyage from Troy, is said to have thrown in there when she called to mind a certain ancient oracle. First the strangers had a dispute with the fishermen about the tripod, and then their cities took up the quarrel and went at last to war, whereupon the Pythian priestess of Apollo told both parties in an oracle that the tripod must be given to the wisest man. So in the first place it was sent to Thales at Miletus, the Coans willingly bestowing upon him alone that for which they had waged war against all the Milesians together. But Thales declared that Bias was a wiser man than he, and the tripod was sent to Bias. From Bias in his turn it was dispatched to another as wiser than he. So it went the rounds and was sent away by each in turn, until at last it came to Thales for the second time. Finally it was carried from Miletus to Thebes, and dedicated to Ismenian Apollo. Theophrastus, however, says that the tripod was sent in the first place to Bias at Priene, and in the second place to Thales at Miletus at the instance of Bias, and so passed through the hands of all the wise men until it came round again to Bias, and finally was sent to Delphi. These, then, are the more common versions of the tale, but some say that the gift thus passed from hand to hand was not the tripod now seen at Delphi, but a bowl sent there by Croesus, and others that it was a beaker left there by Bethicles. In particular we are told of private intercourse between Solon and Anacarsis, and between Solon and Thales, of which the following accounts are given. Anacarsis came to Athens, knocked at Solon's door, and said that he was a stranger who had come to make ties of friendship and hospitality with him. On Solon's replying that it was better to make one's friendships at home, "'Well then,' said Anacarsis, "'do thou, who art at home, make me thy friend and guest.' So Solon, admiring the man's ready wit, received him graciously, and kept him with him some time. This was when he was already engaged in public affairs and compiling his laws. Anacarsis, accordingly, on learning what Solon was about, laughed at him for thinking that he could check the injustice and rapacity of the citizens by written laws, which were just like spiders' webs. They would hold the weak and delicate who might be caught in their meshes, but would be torn in pieces by the rich and powerful. To this Solon is said to have answered that men keep their agreements with each other when neither party profits by the breaking of them, and he was adapting his laws to the citizens in such a manner as to make it clear to all that the practice of justice was more advantageous than the transgression of the laws but the results justified the conjecture of Anacarsis rather than the hopes of Solon. 
It was Anacarsis, too, who said, after attending a session of the assembly, that he was amazed to find that among the Greeks the wise men pleaded causes, but the fools decided them. On his visit to Thales at Miletus, Solon is said to have expressed astonishment that his host was wholly indifferent to marriage and the getting of children. At the time Thales made no answer, but a few days afterwards he contrived to have a stranger say that he was just arrived after a ten days' journey from Athens. When Solon asked what news there was at Athens, the man, who was under instructions what to say, answered, None other than the funeral of a young man who was followed to the grave by the whole city, for he was the son, as I was told, of an honoured citizen who excelled all others in virtue. He was not at the funeral of his son. They told me that he had been travelling abroad for a long time. Oh, the miserable man, said Solon. Pray, what was his name? I heard the name, the man said, but I cannot recall it. Only there was great talk of his wisdom and justice. Thus every answer heightened Solon's fears, and at last, in great distress of soul, he told his name to the stranger and asked him if it was Solon's son that was dead. The man said it was, whereupon Solon began to beat his head and to do and say everything else that betokens a transport of grief. But Thales took him by the hand and said with a smile, This it is, O Solon, which keeps me from marriage and the getting of children. It overwhelms even thee, who art the most stout-hearted of men. But be not dismayed at this story, for it is not true. Such at any rate, according to Hermippus, is the story of Paticus, who used to boast that he had Aesop's soul. However, it is irrational and ignoble to renounce the acquisition of what we want for fear of losing it, for on this principle a man cannot be gratified by the possession of wealth or honour or wisdom for fear he may be deprived of them. Indeed, even virtue, the most valuable and pleasing possession in the world, is often banished by sickness and drugs. And Thales himself, though unmarried, was nevertheless not wholly free from apprehension, unless he also avoided having friends or relations or country. On the contrary, he had a son by his own adoption, as we are told, Cybisthus, his sister's son. For the soul has in itself a capacity for affection, and loves just as naturally as it perceives, understands, and remembers. It clothes itself in this capacity, and attaches itself to those who are not akin to it, and just as if it were a house or an estate that lacks lawful heirs, this craving for affection is entered and occupied by alien and illegitimate children, or retainers, who, along with love for them, inspire anxiety and fear in their behalf. So that you will find men of a somewhat rugged nature who argue against marriage and the begetting of children, and then, when children of their servants or offspring of their concubines fall sick and die, these same men are racked with sorrow and lament abjectly. 
some too at the death even of dogs and horses have been plunged into shameful and intolerable grief but others have borne the loss of noble sons without terrible sorrow or unworthy conduct and have conformed the rest of their lives to the dictates of reason for it is weakness not kindness that brings men into endless pains and terrors when they are not trained by reason to endure the assaults of fortune. Such men do not even enjoy what they long for when they get it, but are filled with continual pangs, tremors, and struggles by the fear of future loss. However, we must be fortified not by poverty against deprivation of worldly goods, nor by friendlessness against loss of friends, nor by childlessness against death of children, but by reason against all adversities. This, under present circumstances, is more than enough on this head. Once, when the Athenians were tired out with a war which they were waging against the Megarians for the island of Salamis, they made a law that no one in future, on pain of death, should move in writing or orally, that the city take up its contention for Salamis. Solon could not endure the disgrace of this, and when he saw that many of the young men wanted steps taken to bring on the war, but did not dare to take those steps themselves on account of the law, he pretended to be out of his head, and a report was given out to the city by his family that he showed signs of madness. He then secretly composed some elegiac verses, and after rehearsing them so that he could say them by rote, he sallied out into the market-place of a sudden, with a cap upon his head. After a large crowd had collected there, he got upon the herald's stone, and recited the poem which begins— Behold in me a herald come from lovely Salamis, with a song in ordered verse instead of a harangue. This poem is entitled Salamis, and contains a hundred very graceful verses. When Solon had sung it, his friends began to praise him, and Pisistratus in particular urged and incited the citizens to obey his words. They therefore repealed the law and renewed the war, putting Solon in command of it. The popular account of his campaign is as follows. Having sailed to Cape Coleus with Pisistratus, he found all the women of the city there performing the customary sacrifice to Demeter. He therefore sent a trusty man to Salamis, who pretended to be a deserter, and bade the Megarians, if they wished to capture the principal women of Athens, to sail to Coleus with him as fast as they could. The Megarians were persuaded by him, and sent off some men in his ship. But when Solon saw the vessel sailing back from the island, he ordered the women to withdraw, and directed those of the younger men who were still beardless, arraying themselves in the garments, headbands, and sandals which the women had worn, and carrying concealed daggers, to sport and dance on the seashore until the enemy had disembarked and the vessel was in their power. This being done as he directed, the Megarians were lured on by what they saw, beached their vessel, 
and leapt out to attack women, as they supposed, vying with one another in speed. The result was that not a man of them escaped, but all were slain, and the Athenians at once set sail and took possession of the island. Others, however, say that the island was not taken in this way, but that Solon first received this oracle from the god at Delphi. The tutelary heroes of the land where once they lived, with sacred rites propitiate, whom the Asopian plain now hides in its bosom. There they lie buried with their faces toward the setting sun. Thereupon Solon sailed by night to the island, and made sacrifices to the heroes Periphemus and Cycrius. Then he took five hundred Athenian volunteers, a decree having been made that these should be supreme in the government of the island if they took it, and setting sail with a number of fishing boats convoyed by a thirty-oared ship, he anchored off the island of Salamis at a point of land looking towards Euboea. But the Megarians in the city of Salamis, hearing only an uncertain report of what had happened, armed themselves hurriedly and set out for the place, at the same time dispatching a ship to spy out the enemy. This ship came near and was captured by Solon, who put her crew in confinement. Then he manned her with the best of his Athenians, and ordered them to sail against the city, keeping themselves as much concealed as was feasible. At the same time, with the rest of his Athenians, he engaged the Megarians on land, and while the fight was still raging, the crew of the ship succeeded in capturing the city. Now there seems to be a confirmation of this story in certain ceremonies afterwards established. Namely, an Attic ship would approach the island in silence at first, then its crew would make an onset with shouts and cries, and one man in full armour would leap out with a shout of triumph and run to the promontory of Cyradium to inform those who were attacking by land. Hard by that place is the temple of Enialius, which was erected by Solon. For he conquered the Megarians, and all who were not slain in the battle were released on parole. Notwithstanding all this, the Megarians persisted in their opposition, and both sides inflicted and suffered many injuries in the war, so that finally they made the Lacedaemonians arbiters and judges of the strife. Accordingly, most writers say that the fame of Homer favoured the contention of Solon, for after himself inserting a verse into the catalogue of ships, he read the passage at the trial thus, Ajax from Salamis brought twelve ships, and bringing stationed them near the Athenian hosts. The Athenians themselves, however, think this an idle tale, and say that Solon proved to the judges that Phileas and Eurysaces, the sons of Ajax, became citizens of Athens, made over their island to them, and took up their residence in Attica, one at Braurun, and the other at Meliti. And they have a township named after Phileus, namely Philidae, to which Pisistratus belonged. They say, too, that Solon, wishing to refute the claims of the Megarians still further, 
made the point that the dead on the island of Salamis were not buried after the Megarian, but after the Athenian fashion. For the Megarians bury their dead facing the east, but the Athenians facing the west. However, Hereus the Megarian denies this, and says that the Megarians also turn the faces of their dead to the west. And what is still more important than this, he says that the Athenians use one tomb for each body, whereas the Megarians, like the early inhabitants of Salamis, place three or four bodies in one tomb. However, they say that Solon was further supported by sundry Pythian oracles in which the gods spoke of Salamis as Ionian. This case was decided by five Spartans, Critolaidas, Amomphoritus, Hypsecidas, Anaxilas, and Cleomenes. These events, then, presently made Solon famous and powerful. But he was even more admired and celebrated among the Greeks for what he said in behalf of the temple at Delphi, namely that the Greeks must come to its relief and not suffer the people of Syra to outrage the oracle, but aid the Delphians in maintaining the honour of the god. For it was by his persuasion that the Amphictyons undertook the war, as Aristotle, among others, testifies in his list of the victors at the Pythian games, where he ascribes the measure to Solon. He was not, however, appointed general for this war, as Evanthes the Samian says, according to Hermippus, for Aeschines the orator makes no such statement, and in the records of Delphi it is stated that Alcmeon and not Solon commanded the Athenians. Now the Silonian pollution had for a long time agitated the city, ever since Megacles the Archon had persuaded Silon and his fellow conspirators, who had taken sanctuary in the temple of Athena, to come down and stand their trial. They fastened a braided thread to the image of the goddess, and kept hold of it, but when they reached the shrine of the Arrhenes on their way down, the thread broke of its own accord, upon which Megacles and his fellow Archons rushed to seize them, on the plea that the goddess refused them the rites of suppliance. Those who were outside of sacred precincts were stoned to death, and those who took refuge at the altars were slaughtered there. Only those were spared who made supplication to the wives of the archons. Therefore the archons were called polluted men, and were held in execration. The survivors of the followers of Silone also recovered strength, and were forever at variance with the descendants of Megacles. At this particular time the quarrel was at its height, and the people divided between the two factions. Solon, therefore, being now in high repute, interposed between them, along with the noblest of the Athenians, and by his entreaties and injunctions persuaded the men who were held to be polluted to submit to a trial, and to abide by the decision of three hundred jurors selected from the nobility. Myron of Phyla conducted the prosecution, and the family of Megacles was found guilty. Those who were alive were banished, and the bodies of the dead were dug up and cast forth beyond the borders of the country. During these disturbances the Megarians also attacked the Athenians, who lost Nicaea, 
and were driven out of Salamis once more. The city was also visited with superstitious fears and strange appearances, and the seers declared that their sacrifices indicated pollutions and defilements which demanded expiation. Under these circumstances they summoned to their aid from Crete Epimenides of Phaestus, who is reckoned as the seventh wise man by some of those who refuse Periander a place in the list. He was reputed to be a man beloved of the gods and endowed with a mystical and heaven-sent wisdom in religious matters. Therefore the men of his time said that he was the son of a nymph named Balti and called him a new Curies. On coming to Athens he made Solon his friend, assisted him in many ways, and paved the way for his legislation. For he made the Athenians decorous and careful in their religious services, and milder in their rites of mourning, by attaching certain sacrifices immediately to their funeral ceremonies, and by taking away the harsh and barbaric practices in which their women had usually indulged up to that time. Most important of all, by sundry rites of propitiation and purification, and by sacred foundations, he hallowed and consecrated the city, and brought it to be observant of justice and more easily inclined to unanimity. It is said that when he had seen Munichia and considered it for some time, he remarked to the bystanders that man was indeed blind to the future. For if the Athenians only knew what mischiefs the place would bring upon their city, they would devour it with their own teeth. A similar insight into futurity is ascribed to Thales. They say that he gave directions for his burial in an obscure and neglected quarter of the city's territory, predicting that it would one day be the marketplace of Miletus. Well then, Epimenides was vastly admired by the Athenians, who offered him much money and large honours, but he asked for nothing more than a branch of the sacred olive tree, with which he returned home. End of Solon, Part 1 Recording by Graham Redmond